Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network Literature Channel. I'm Duncan McCargo, a professor at the University of Copenhagen who also happens to read a lot of novels. I'm delighted today to be joined by Sarah Davis, the author of a new novel entitled Scapegoat, which is just out from Farah, Strauss and Giroux. Sarah, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. Set on a California campus that sounds rather like Stanford, The Scapegoat tells the increasingly disconcerting story of a university employee who becomes convinced that his recently deceased father did not die from natural causes. It's a particularly hard book to summarize, partly because it straddles and almost parodies a number of different genres. Sarah, could you begin by telling us where the idea for The Scapegoat came from? I could answer in such a long way. Well, from a practical perspective, I was in my last semester of my writing graduate school, and I had previously started a different novel in my first year, and then that sort of wasn't going anywhere. So then I had one semester left, and I knew I needed to start like a different novel. So (laughs) I tried to start this novel. It's a little bit hard to talk about where it came from also because when I started it, it was really different. Like the main character who is, I think, like in terms of his core identity is the same person as the main character who exists in the book today, had very different life circumstances. Like he was a father of a teenage girl and the book was a series of letters from him to his daughter. So it was like... Right. Second person address. And it heavily involved animal traps. Yes. There was just a lot going on that's no longer going on. So I think originally I had been interested in family situations that are very hermetically sealed and become unhealthy, but the intentions were good. The intentions were to be protective, but then they moved into this less healthy place. But since that's not really currently happening as much in the novel, as it became, like, it's sort of confusing to say that that was the inspiration. Fair enough. Yes. I think as we get into this book, we do find quite a number of confusing things. So that Mm -hmm. you began with slight confusion is perhaps understandable. When I started reading the book, I assumed I was going to be reading a campus novel, which typically seems rather familiar, reassuringly low stakes terrain. And that was obviously my first mistake. Can you say something about the genre of the scapegoat? In terms of like, is it a campus novel? What kind of novel is it? Oh. (laughs) I know it's hard to say, but that's why I have to ask you. Yeah, you know, my parents are professors at Stanford and I'm an only child. And this was the job I grew up being most familiar with. And I'm not really familiar with what they actually do, but more like practical contours of when they go to work, what kinds Mm -hmm. of, what the social events look like and, you know, having, visiting people to dinner and so on and so forth. So 
it was just the easiest kind of job I could give like a grown up that I felt like I could convincingly convey, not really having had very many grown up type jobs myself. I just think Stanford has some interesting stuff going on, just that it was founded by these wealthy parents who had lost their son who had died while they were to European tour. The way it looks, I think, interesting. It has this long drive the stanford picture that you see on the postcard is like this long drive with palm trees on both sides and then it it heads up to this church with a big scene painted on it and then on the one side of the drive is this mausoleum that is about their son's place of rest and you know i just think it has like kind of an interesting mix of new things and old things and california history and traditional fancy university in other ways right to help give readers an idea of what the scapegoat is about, which as we're discovering is, is a little, can be a little challenging to understand, is there a short passage you could read for us that might help set the scene for the listeners? Oh, gosh. It seems like easiest to me would just read the first two and a half pages. Does that sound yes. like it would help readers Wonderful. set the scene? Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just page one, chapter one. When Kirsty interrupted me, I was in the break room. I had just sat down at the round, perpetually stained plastic table in the corner and was listening with satisfaction to the coffee maker as it began its quiet gurgle. Reluctantly, I made a small gesture of greeting. She asked if it was a fresh pot, and I nodded, and to discourage any further conversation, I bent my head over the weekly paper that happened to be open on the table in front of me. She was dressed, I noticed, entirely in athletic clothing black and elastic with a muted sheen. Her cheeks were flushed and the triangle of flesh below her collarbone was flecked with beads of perspiration. She passed behind me and asked, startling me, is that the horoscope? She moved closer to me and I could smell the scent of her freshly exercised body in the small windowless room. That's funny, she said. She had not pegged me for the kind of man, the kind of guy who read the horoscopes. Oh, I said quickly, I'm not. I'm not reading this. And as I said said it, I saw that I looked like a very poor liar. I had failed to notice somehow that the paper in front of me had been turned to the horoscope section. And not only that, but the facing page had been folded back with care. Could you read me mine? She asked, reaching for a mug. I'm a Pisces, she said, and my heart sank. As a rule, I maintained a careful neutrality toward my colleagues. I preferred not to involve myself in university gossip or department politics, aware without regret that I had chosen for myself a somewhat lonely stance. But when Kirsty arrived early last year, I found that she provoked in me a strong aversion that I couldn't shake, an abiding hostility I could not explain even to myself. And yet I thought there was no real way to refuse her request, and so I found the right place on the page, next to a picture of two turning fish. Wishful thinking won't make it so. Don't waste any more time, energy, or resources on a dead end. You get your point across better by keeping your dignity. Some people just aren't buying what you're selling. I thought of something else just then, and when I became aware of Kirsty again, I saw that she was sitting back on her heels in front of the cabinet below the sink, as if momentarily frozen in place. 
Her gaze apparently fixed on an unremarkable strip of wood below the sink slip. Was that really, she asked, her voice suddenly very quiet, what it said? I could not quite see how to answer her, and I was grateful when the coffee pot switched itself off with its distinct click, and Kirsty seemed to forget her question and revive. What I meant to do next was turn the page quickly, to forget all about horoscopes and Kirsty. This was not a day, after all, when I could afford to be distracted. But somehow, contrary to my intention, I saw my own index finger slide quickly down the page to rest on a crude drawing of a goat. Dear Capricorn, the text read, don't be afraid to connect the dots. The path between events that may seem unrelated will soon become clear. With your moon in the fifth house, you will find yourself uniquely positioned to set things in motion. When I had finished reading, I looked up at the wall. Somewhere, as if far away, Kirsty was stirring something into her cup and making some quiet remark, but I could barely hear it. I looked back down at the paper. I read my horoscope again. The path between events may, that may seem unrelated will soon become clear. It was all very odd. The horoscopes had turned out to be something very different than I had expected them to be. Uniquely positioned, I thought, to set things in motion. As much as I lacked confidence in the source, the message could not reasonably be dismissed. It was not irrelevant at all. Could it be a coincidence, I wondered, that I had received this strange message on this day, the day of my father's open house? A strange message, undoubtedly, and yet somehow encouraging. Thank you so much. So mm-hmm. we've got this idea now of a narrative voice, the guy whose name we don't know, with his somewhat lonely stance. And so before too long, I decided that this was now a novel, something along the lines of a Kafka story of the 21st century, except that mm. there was no one called Kay or Joseph Kay. So mm-hmm. how far... Some people seem to be reading The Scapegoat as a dark satire about bureaucracy, about postmodern organizations, the struggle of the individual to relate to other human beings. What do you think about those kinds of understandings of the book? You know, I welcome people to have those understandings if (laughs) those feel like the right understandings to them. I personally was not even really clear on what postmodernism was, which is shameful as I was an English major. (laughs) But that word only really started getting used when marketing type people got involved with my publisher started writing jacket copy and stuff like that. And I actually had to text my friend who was an English PhD to be like, what is postmodernism? (laughs) Like, is is my novel postmodern? And then I said what I thought postmodernism was. And then embarrassingly, it turned out that I was describing just modernism. Uh (laughs) It's just, um, Embarrassing. And then so she explained what postmodernism was, and she said she thought my novel sounded really postmodern. So I was great, you know, that's cool. But is yeah, as you can tell, not something that I was setting out to do, setting out to tackle. Right. So this is the, the challenge. I think readers naturally read a book trying to relate it and connect it to things that they're familiar with and books that they've mm-hmm. read before. And that's a, probably a natural reaction to almost any book that we pick up. But of course, yes, it doesn't always correspond to what the author had originally intended. You've already mentioned the presence of the campus. And it has to be said that apart from the 
compelling but patently untrustworthy voice of the narrator, the other human characters in the book are somewhat shadowy, whilst mm -hmm. at the same time the often fog-bound university campus practically becomes a character in its own right, as does the ever more sinister old mission hotel San Buenaventura. Could you mm -hmm. say something about the sense of place in the novel? Yeah. So I'm from the Bay Area. I'm from Palo Alto. Right. I yes. feel as though San Francisco Bay, Bay Area physical landscape can be so extreme, like like the idea of like a cold, foggy beach yes. being just so much more mysterious and creepy and having such a different vibe than the beach on like the Jersey Shore, which is mm -hmm. sunny and sky is blue. So I always just thought that it was such an interesting landscape, a lot of weird smells. So that's like on the coast. And then inland where Stanford is, the climate is very temperate and sunny. And yeah. I guess I just like the idea of having, I think when people imagine, people who are able to imagine the Stanford campus as a thing, as a picture in their mind, imagine that palm trees with the blue sky above the palm trees, the foothills behind the campus and it's just this very super idyllic, super sunny, quintessential California type of image. And then I I like the idea, the kind of campus novel I like is yes. where there's like a is like a dark underbelly or Indeed. some sinister stuff going on. So I think like that contrast is also nice. Right. Yes. And what about the hotel? The hotel. So it's almost a character in the novel, isn't it? Yeah, so I've always liked hotels and novels. There's this Canadian writer, I think his name is Howard Norman, who has a lot of hotels in his fiction that I always enjoyed. And then Alfredo Murakami does a lot of hotels. And I just, yes. I, I think they're a fun setting, fun place for characters to go. And I'm sure there's people who have written essays about why they are a full place for characters to yes. go in fiction. So I won't try to elucidate any of those points. But then, so also I had been writing the novel for maybe two or three years without a hotel in it. And uh -huh. then I was living in Michigan and auditing this class at Wayne State University. That was, it was like a genocide studies 101 survey course there was a section about the holocaust and there was a section about Khmer Rouge and then um, yes. the big genocide Rwanda also on the syllabus was the European colonization of North America which I had not previously thought of as a genocide like certainly right. not how it was taught to me in primary school so I thought that was interesting and yeah, just not the way that things had been conveyed to me previously as a Californian, but it definitely seemed to fit the criteria. People have different opinions about it, but it didn't seem to obviously not fit the criteria that has been laid out by the UN for genocide. So anyway, so I just thought mm -hmm. that was an interesting part of thinking about California and writing about California. And I wanted to include, oh, you know, and then there's also this trope, like in The Shining, for example, of Yes. Things being on like an old Native American burial ground, the haunting and stuff like that. So I just thought that that was an interesting place to go with the hotel. Right. And you've already started alluding to this, but forming a backdrop to the personal agonies of the narrator, there's this growing protest movement on campus, which is all about this history of the California missions. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a bit more about this political context, which it, it looms very much behind the narrative and we're not always 
entirely sure how important is it a subplot or or what is what how exactly does that relate to the main story yeah so i think that that's a good point that it's not clear whether it's a subplot or not because so the backdrop is that there is this hotel that it's on the land that's owned by the university though it's not on the university campus which is stanford like a similar setup where it owns a lot of surrounding land yes. and it can't be sold it can only be leased and in the book, there's this hotel that has been a former California Franciscan mission that has been mm. converted into a hotel, um, which is not a real life thing. I don't think there are any hotels that are former Franciscan missions, but that has happened in the book. And understandably, there is a backlash from people who don't that that really makes sense to do, mm. given that the missions were these sites of horrible suffering. Yes. For many indigenous peoples. And I wanted to make it so that, that that was happening and that the main character is willfully not interested, mm-hmm. which I think is not uncommon response to that type of protest. So at various points, the fact that the hotel exists and the hotel's history and the fact that people are upset about the hotel's history, it's smacking him in the face. And he's very actively, this does not concern me. I like, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not interested. Please no Mm -hmm. more information about this place until it becomes impossible for him to avoid in a way that I feel like I should probably not spell out for. Indeed not doing spoilers purposes yeah right no exactly so without giving it all away as you say the narrative gets darker and darker towards the end it also gets rather more difficult to follow by the final chapter someone's clearly died and Mm. the the narrator's grip on reality which is never robust has become increasingly tenuous Mm. without giving it all away can you talk about how you wanted readers to understand the last 25 pages or so of the book is this ultimately a story about mental illness at least on one level Well, it is hard to talk about it without giving it all away. But no, I didn't want... I mean, yes, it is a story. uh, I don't think it's a story about mental illness. I think it Mm -hmm. is a story in which mental illness is a factor. But (laughs) I'm not interested in exploring mental illness at this particular time. I did want everything to have a real world, non-fantastical, non-he's-just-crazy Yes. Explanation. I feel as though uh, I assume that my editors would tell me if it wasn't clear enough what had actually happened. But from talking Mm -hmm. to people who have read the book, it seems like a lot of people were still very confused. So, okay. Okay. I'm not the only one who wasn't completely yeah. <laughs> sure that I'd figured out what was going on. <laughs> no, I think it is like a really common response. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I also I also got a lot of things that were like, I really love how this book was like non-linear and played with time. And like, I really was not supposed to be like that. It was just, no. it's supposed to be like linear and not. I thought it was linear. Yes, yeah, I it's, think it it's, was linear. it's not yes. supposed to play with time. So. No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, you know. So you can't always recognize yourself in the accounts that are given of your story by others. No. And you know, like, I guess it's out of my hands now. Like you write a Mm -hmm. book and then it's like, 
you can't follow up with each individual to be like, excuse me, no, right. That's right. <laughs> your inter- interpretation is incorrect. But I right. guess I just, you know, it's very hard to like perceive a book that you yourself have written, like, or particularly when you've been writing it for like seven years, which is um, yes. how long it took me. So I just assume it's very hard to imagine, especially things like that are supposed to be like mysterious. It's hard to to imagine how they would appear to somebody reading the book for the first time. Yes. But so I just assume that my editors would be in charge of telling me if it's right. too confusing or not. And I guess, I don't know, I guess we all fell under the same like delusion that it was more clear than it was, but definitely going to try to work on that for my second project. I'm relieved to hear that I had the quote unquote correct understanding of what had happened. I would like for people to have a good reading experience. So I think probably too much confusion is not enjoyable. So I would like to maybe for my second book, try to reach a a more a more intentionally calibrated level of confusion. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So yes, there's a lot going on in this book, and as you say, it's a somewhat hard to summarize. I don't want to press you any further in terms of doing that. What's coming out from you next? Have you got another project, a new novel, in the works, and will it be anything completely different from this one? If you had asked me that two months ago, I would have said, yes, I have a new project. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It is about Mary Shelley, who is undead. Mm, Yes. However, since then, (laughs) I have, so that that was like a novel that I started probably a year ago, and I probably have a hundred pages or something like that. But then after the publicity stuff for it, this book died down I returned to that book and I just am not sure that it is really going to happen so right tbd yes indeed so we await further updates as to what might be coming next yes yes I am I am equally interested believe me (laughs) I'm sure you must be very interested Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. Let's hope many of our listeners are now sufficiently intrigued to pick up a copy of The Scapegoat and read it for themselves. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. I'm Duncan McCargo, and I've been in conversation with the novelist Sarah Davis about her distinctly unsettling new novel, The Scapegoat, which might be misleadingly summarized as David Lodge meets Franz Kafka meets Stephen King. You've been listening to the New Books Network Literature Channel.